We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 359 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Thursday, July 21st, 2022, and I am coming to you on location for this installment of the podcast. I do not do on-location installments of the podcast often, but uh, this is one of those occasions. Fenwick Island, Delaware. We are at the beach and we are headed home. Uh, I'm, recording, <laughs> I'm recording this on Wednesday night. We will be en route to the Galdi compound at some point on Thursday morning, hopefully earlier rather than later, but uh, we shall see. Circumstances shall dictate uh, when we end up leaving on Thursday morning. We spent just a few days at the beach. Those of you who have small kids or have had small kids uh, know this. A few days at the beach. Uh, that's just enough, okay? Uh, we have a son who next month will turn five. We have a daughter who next month will turn two. Uh, I have, over the last few years, truly come to understand the phrase, I need a vacation from my vacation. That is a cliche phrase, right? And I had heard that cliche over the years, and I kind of, sort of knew what it meant. But, you know, until you experience that, you don't know. Well, now I know, okay? <laughs> now I know. I totally get that phrase. Because when you have small kids, there is no vacation, okay? Spoiler alert, there is no vacation. There is only the transporting of chaos from one location to another. That's what your vacation is, a transporting of chaos. The same chaos, just in a different location. There's no relaxing, okay? There's no vacation, and the near two-year-old daughter over the last few days has learned to use the word no. Yeah, uh, this happened over the last few days. She has started to use the word no. So that's been nice. Uh, she now is to my wife and me as, as Juan Soto is to the Nationals. It's time to eat lunch. No. Do you want to sign a 15-year, $440 million contract extension? No. That's where we are. So I hope things are going well for you. Uh, hello and welcome to this Thursday Vacation Week installment 
of the Al Galdi podcast. Only three shows for this week, Monday, Thursday, and Friday. And then we will be back to our regular schedule next week, Monday through Friday. Uh, next week, of course, will include the start of 2022 Commander's Training Camp. That'll begin this coming Wednesday, July 27th. Speaking of the Commanders, I have something a little different for you later in the show. This something is something that I have been thinking about while at the beach. Perhaps the something is a result of staring into the Atlantic Ocean, you know, staring at the horizon where the ocean meets the sky. As Rod Stewart sang many years ago, where the ocean meets the sky, I'll be sailing. Perhaps sailing on Dan Snyder's super yacht. But I digress. But the commander segment that I have for you later in the show is this. The parallels between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. Yeah, there are a number of striking parallels between what remains the most romanticized team of the Dan Snyder era, the 2012 Redskins, and the team of the now, the 2022 Commanders. Hear me now, believe me later. The parallels, the similarities between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. What if the 2022 Commanders are about to do as the 2012 Redskins did? We'll have some scheduled fun with these parallels later in the show. But before that, I have a special guest on the show, Nationals insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. Uh, Jesse will be with me next segment for an in-depth, high-level conversation about the situation between the Nats and right fielder Juan Soto. A situation that has escalated quite a bit over the last few days, including with, <laughs> I had to laugh when I saw this, including with Soto's agent, Scott Boris, via comments to Sports Illustrated chastising the Nats for not having chartered a flight for Soto to Los Angeles from Monday night's home run derby, which Soto, of course, won and Tuesday night's All-Star Game. You talk about first world problems. They didn't charter a flight for him. Oh, let me clutch my pearls. Juan Soto had to actually fly commercial. Paris the thought. Uh, but regardless of how you feel about that, it's that Boris said this. It's that Soto himself on Monday said something of note, uh, the audio for which I'll play for you. Uh, it's that Soto on Saturday afternoon expressed unhappiness over the leaking of him having turned down the 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats. That all makes you feel like this Nats-Juan Soto situation has taken an ugly turn. Where are we with this situation? Are the Nats going to actually trade Soto prior to the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd. Are we on the verge of one of the biggest trades in Washington, D.C. sports history? How did the Nats get to be in this position to begin with? I'll get to all of that and a lot more with Jesse Doherty next segment. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback over the last few days on the Juan Soto situation. Tweet from Edge, don't care what kind of prospects we get for Juan Soto. The franchise will never have a player like this again. Uh, thank you for that, Edge. Look, there's no doubt, man. Uh, Juan Soto is a special player. I mean, he to me is the best pure hitter who the Nats have had. 
Uh, he, to me, is the heir apparent to the Capitals' Alex Ovechkin as the number one star in Washington, D.C. sports. There are a lot of similarities between Soto and Ovechkin in terms of talent and charisma. Tweet from Will Kramer, loved the pod on Monday. You forgot to mention how bad the Orioles' return for Manny Machado has been for the rebuild. Will Diaz ever make an impact? It's a huge worry of mine with Soto. Uh, Good topic, Will. So the Orioles in July 2018 traded shortstop slash third baseman Manny Machado to the Los Angeles Dodgers for five prospects, uh, none of whom (laughs) has truly panned out, although starting pitcher Dean Kramer this season is showing signs of panning out. Uh, the Diaz, who Will mentioned, is outfielder Yusniel Diaz, who this season for AAA Norfolk has an OPS of just a 710 in what already is his age 25 season. There's a big difference, though, between the O's trading Manny Machado in 2018 and the Nats potentially trading Juan Soto in 2022. The 2018 season was a contract season for Manny Machado. He was set to be a free agent in the 2018-2019 offseason. This season is not a contract season for Juan Soto. Uh, He is under team control through the 2024 season. Soto in 2022, with two plus seasons left of team control, is worth a lot more than Machado in 2018, with just a few months left of team control. Email from Dr. Muhammad in Washington, D.C. Writes Dr. Muhammad, who is one of many doctors who listen to this podcast. Thank you for being a great start to the day with your excellent pod. The Juan Soto developments remind me of what you've said on the pod before. Everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end. I see this in the Nats treatment of Juan Soto after offering him less than market value and then leaking the offer. I remember the truly lean years with John Lennon as the ace. I don't think the team has been as horrendous as it has been now. The downside is that apart from Cade Cavalli and Jackson Rutledge, we don't have anything to be excited about either, especially from a hitting standpoint. It is interesting to see Josiah Gray develop, but Steven Strasburg Gray is not. The only thing of value that we have right now is Juan Soto. However, it is like having a million-dollar car parked in the carport of a trailer park. The team is truly awful, with not much on the way. It isn't the case that we will be able to build anything around Soto from the farm system anytime soon. With the ownership turmoil, we won't be able to sign any big-name free agents either. We are not one to two years away in the slightest. So why not capitalize on Soto now? Why not get four to five top prospects who we can grow with and love on the team's next push to the playoffs in four years? I know the ultimate goal of having prospects is having one of them turn into a player of Juan Soto's caliber, but our timing just isn't right to make him a viable part of the future. What I love about baseball is that it is a slow burn, so this ember of hope could slowly ignite over the next few years. Instead of seeing Juan Soto get walked because of atrocious support, which is not too exciting, let's get a new core of youngsters who fans can get behind. Maybe instead of having the above situation with the Bugatti, we can have a fleet of Acuras with a Porsche sprinkled in. It would at least give us hope and allow us to be competitive, and who knows what can happen in the future. Thanks again, and keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Muhammad. I appreciate that. 
Uh, very good email. And I like that you referenced that quote that I have used. Uh, the quote is from the movie Cocktail. Uh, Tom Cruise, as Brian Flanagan says, quote, everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end, end quote. In fact, here's that line. Everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end. Yeah, there you go. Everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end. I think that there's a lot of truth in that. In sports and in life, everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end. It's a funny thing, this Juan Soto situation for the Nats. On the one hand, he is a tremendous player. He is a generational talent. He is, by all indications, a good person and a good teammate. And he is young enough to where signing him to a mega money contract extension just might work because the Nats wouldn't be doing the thing that has gotten so many other teams in trouble over the years, paying a player in his 30s for what he did in his 20s. This season is only Soto's age 23 season. However, on the other hand, and to Dr. Muhammad's point, and to a point that I have made quite a bit on the podcast and on the other podcast that I do, the Nats Chat Podcast, the number one issue facing the Nats right now is not the Juan Soto situation. The number one issue facing the Nats right now is that they don't have enough good young players. And that's a function of the team's drafting and player development having declined big time over the last, say, eight years or so. And so nothing, not even the Juan Soto situation, matters more for the Nats than them getting good young players. And so if the Nats can turn Juan Soto into, say, three or four players who end up being very good players for the Nats, then there is very much an argument that the Nats actually are better off trading Soto than they are signing Soto to a long-term mega money contract extension. Because one player in baseball, even a player as great as Juan Soto, can only impact the fortunes of a team so much. That Soto is A, really good, B, really young, and C, under team control through the 2024 season makes him one of the most valuable trade chips that any team could possibly have. And the potential very much exists for the Nats to turn Soto into multiple very good young players. And if Soto isn't likely to sign a long-term mega money contract extension with the Nats because of their ownership uncertainty and because the team is so bad right now and because the team's farm system is bad right now and because Soto's agent is Scott Boris, who doesn't like his clients signing contract extensions prior to hitting free agency anyway, then yeah, as much of a bummer as it is that Soto soon could be gone from the Nats, this actually all could end up working out well for the Nats. If they get back a haul for Soto, that's good enough to turn into multiple very good players. And of course, that is a big if, okay? I mean, that's not easy to do. But, you know, you can be sad about Juan Soto potentially soon being gone from the Nats while also recognizing that the right baseball move in all of this may well be to trade Soto. What's really unfortunate in the Juan Soto situation to me is that the Nats didn't or couldn't sign him to a long-term contract extension years ago. 
You know, a trend in Major League Baseball for decades has been teams signing young arbitration eligible players to contract extensions, buying out the players' arbitration years and some of the players' free agency years. And these deals can be win-wins for teams and players. These deals have been done in MLB for years. These deals were pioneered in the 1990s uh, by John Hart during his time as Cleveland Indians general manager. So the notion of these deals goes back a long time now, and we do continue to see such deals in MLB today. That The Nats did not pursue such a deal with Juan Soto years ago or couldn't complete such a deal with Soto years ago is a real shame. And it may be that Soto and Scott Boris were never open to such a deal. But boy, <laughs> would such a deal have been really good for the Nats. You know, you overpay Soto in the short term, i.e. his early arbitration years, in exchange for having him under contract through at least a few of his free agency years. Well, when it comes to getting a deal done to buy the Washington, D.C. area home that you want, ain't nobody better than Kellen Hunt. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. If you have questions about the real estate market in the Washington, D.C. area in these tricky economic times, if you are wanting to buy a new home in the D.C. area but are unsure about some things given everything going on with our economy, do not hesitate to contact Kellen Hunt. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Kellen Hunt understands the D.C. area real estate market, and he is here for you to listen to what you want no matter your situation in life. Whether you are a first-time buyer looking for guidance, or you have a young family looking for a bigger home, or you're ready to retire and or are looking to downsize, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people. He's a great guy, and he will listen to you. He's not just some know-it-all. He works for you. He takes in what you're looking for and then gets to work. Smart, attention to detail, creative. Put Kellen Hunt to work for you, and Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you the buyer get a piece of the action. Who doesn't want that in these economic times? Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing and he wants to help. So visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book an introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kel. Visit CloseItWithKel.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. Well, as is always the case, I appreciate you listening to this podcast. If you have never rated the podcast, please consider doing that. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, you can give the podcast a five-star rating. Uh, also, if you have never written a review of the podcast, Please consider doing that. You can write a review of the podcast if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. The review does not have to be long. It can be just a sentence or two saying that you like the podcast, but the ratings and the reviews help to make the podcast successful, and I do very much appreciate you doing them. Well, it is amazing but true. The worst team in Major League Baseball right now is the number one story in Major League Baseball right now. 
The Nationals, uh, they are a major league worst 31 and 63 with a major league worst run differential of minus 149. And yet the Nats are the talk of the sport with what's going on with right fielder Juan Soto. Uh, We this past Saturday afternoon had the bombshell news, multiple reports that Soto has turned down a 15 year $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats, who thus have become open to trading him prior to the MLB trade deadline, which is on Tuesday, August 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern. And we, over the last few days, have had a lot more added to the story, including a number of things that went down on Monday. Uh, We, on Monday, had Soto's agent, Scott Boris, publicly shaming the Nats for how Soto traveled to Los Angeles for his participation in Monday night's home run derby, which Soto won, and Tuesday night's All-Star game. Uh, Said Boris on Monday to Sports Illustrated, quote, the Atlanta Braves arrived five hours earlier than Juan Soto. You know why? Because their team chartered a plane. Juan had to fly on a commercial flight and wait in an airport for two hours End quote. Uh, Also on Monday was Juan Soto in a session with reporters saying the following about Nance President of Baseball Operations and General Manager Mike Rizzo on the Sports Junkies on 106.7 The Fan on June 1st, having said, quote, we are not trading Juan Soto. End quote. Take a listen to this from Soto again on Monday. A couple of weeks ago, they were saying they will never train me, and now they, all these things he came out. Uh, it feels really uncomfortable. You don't know what to trust, but at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's out of my hands what decision they made. Yeah, how about that from Juan Soto on Monday? Quote, a couple weeks ago, they were saying they will never trade me, and now all these things, they came out. It feels really uncomfortable. You don't know what to trust. And quote, uh, combine those Soto comments from Monday and the Scott Boris comments on Monday with Soto in a session with reporters this past Saturday afternoon, having expressed anger with the news of him having turned down a 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats having been leaked, uh, presumably by the Nats, although we can't say that with complete certainty. And you wonder just how much damage has been done here to the Nats-Juan Soto relationship To say nothing of the ultimate question, will slash should the Nats trade Soto prior to the August 2nd MLB trade deadline? Well, a man who has been all over the Juan Soto situation is a man who joins me now. Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. He does an excellent job covering the Nats. You can follow Jesse on Twitter at Doherty underscore Jesse. Jesse, I appreciate you taking some time from your All-Star break to come on the podcast, although I'm guessing that you're not getting all that much of an All-Star break right now uh, with the Juan Soto situation, but how are you? I tried. I tried. It didn't work. Uh, (laughs) I I, I was trying to get away for a couple days, and it was like, you know, every time I shut my brain off, I was like, oh, maybe that's an interesting trade possibility, right? I started to think it sparkles, so. Yeah, the extent to which this Juan Soto situation has escalated over just the last few days really is something. So many things can change between now and the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd. We get that. Uh, But that said, right now, best guess, do you think that the Nats will trade Soto prior to the MLB trade deadline? Yeah, it's hard to say. I think think they're going to really consider it. I think that I, it sounds PRE, but if the right deal's there, I think it happens. And and there are times that's a that's a big thing to say, not just for me, but for the team. That's where I've heard it from. And I think that 
that's a big thing because there's often times in the past where, like, even if the right deal was there, it wouldn't happen, right? So I think what we can say confidently is that they're going to give it a really hard look and they're open to the possibility. Whether or not it happens, that's, that's so contingent on the other side as well. Because as we know, it's going to be a massive package. The Nationals are going to have to really consider if they're maximizing the value. I think one thing I... I don't get peeved by it, but I think it's a misconception maybe in some of the coverage of this is like talking about matching the value. Um, that's, that's really hard to do. One, just what does that even mean? And two, you're talking about a Hall of Fame you know, caliber player. So I think it's more just maximizing. So what, what the Nationals decide that is, and if the team can meet that bar is the biggest part of the equation, it's hard to know if that will happen. There certainly has been an ugliness that has emerged in the Juan Soto situation over the last few days. Uh, First with Soto's comments this past Saturday afternoon expressing anger over the news of him having turned down a 15-year, $440 million contract extension offer from the Nats having been leaked. Uh, Then with Soto on Monday saying, quote, it feels really uncomfortable. You don't know what to trust, end quote. Uh, And also with Scott Boris to Sports Illustrated on Monday shaming the Nats for having not chartered a flight for Soto to Los Angeles. Do you believe that the Nats-Juan Soto relationship has suffered irreparable damage? I think that his relationship with the team is probably worse than it was a week ago. I also think that doesn't matter a ton because... I mean, what, what did we see this past this past winter was players, not Soto, but a lot of players across the league openly tweeting about their owners. And openly, I think the relationship between player and management is probably framed more often by photos on the wires of them hugging during batting practice or the public quotes about, we love this guy, or we think he's a great player, or we think he's a generational talent. The reality is that Juan Soto doesn't really work with Mike Rizzo. I mean, he, like in some ways he does, and I think at the negotiation table and each year at his arbitration deadline, or um, they say hello to each other, and they're, 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 they're part of the same organization. But Juan Soto much more closely works with Darnell Coles and with Dave Martinez and with you know the assistant hitting coach and the training staff and his teammates. So what the relationship is between management and the player, I think is often superseded by how that player views, you know, his, his manager, his teammates, the clubhouse attendants, the PR staff, even who are more hands-on. I, I don't, I don't necessarily know as a bigger picture topic. I mean, if you really think someone is, you know, being disrespectful to you and the negotiations and your privacy, that could have a long-term effect on whether you want to work with them. But ultimately it's, the offer is the offer, yeah. not how the offer is put framed in public or how it leaks. It's it's money, and then it's if you're comfortable in the city, if you're comfortable with the staff, um, that matters a lot more, I, I think. You've done some terrific reporting on the Juan Soto situation. One of the nuggets that you've had is that Soto's camp has not presented the Nats with a counteroffer in contract extension talks. Is that abnormal? Or do players' camps in contract extension talks normally not start putting forth contract extension proposals? I mean, it's, it's really a question. I think, I think we've seen over the years, and something that we have to remember in this, is often public declaration from both Juan Soto and Scott Boris that the best case for him and his client 
and the best case for Soto is to go to free agency. So when that's where the negotiations start, I think the Soto side, being Scott Boris and Soto, believes that the Nationals need to come to them with an offer they can't refuse. It's not, these negotiations are not sitting down and trying to hammer out a number, which I think is a lot different than trying to convince you to come off your stance that you want to be a free agent in 2024. Because in the case of maybe, I don't know how these negotiations went, so I'm totally spitballing, but maybe someone like Fernando Tatis Jr. or Ronald Acuna Jr. Uh, you could argue all day and about whether those were player-friendly, club-friendly. We know Acuna still was club-friendly. But but in those cases, like I'm, I, I would imagine there was some back and forth. In this case, the Nationals know where it's starting. The starting point is that Soto wants to be a free agent. Mm-hmm. So now you're coming to him and you're saying, we need to beat whatever number it is. It's, and right now it's an abstract number because, again, there has not been counter proposals. We need to beat that and make it so you don't want to go there. Obviously, that was not reached. And Scott Boris on the record this week with a few outlets saying that the AAV wasn't high enough at 29.3 and they didn't even really consider the offer to be uh, competitive or, or you know a serious offer. And, and I think the Nationals would push back and say, we're offering you the largest contract by total value in sports history. So I, I think you could you could see both sides of that equation, but but the reason why there hasn't been a counteroffer to me is that these aren't standard negotiations. In that the end goal is to find a solution. There's no deadline. There's no there's not a common ground of we wanting. I think Juan Soto again would stay in Washington, but it's not. Let's make it happen right now. It's yeah, I would entertain that, and I'm interested. But the number has to be really high and it has to be right, or I'll, I'll consider it in free agency. When I two years from now I go to the open market and we let the league decide what my, what the value is. Much more with Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post on the Nationals at Juan Soto in moments. Who knows where this Nats-Juan Soto situation is headed, but we do know this. If you have a case, you should contact Paulson and Nace. Always know that the law firm of Paulson and Nace is there for you. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611, and when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace treats its clients with respect and dignity and wants what's best for the firm's clients. Paulson and Nace will treat you, your family, and your situation with the care and expertise that you deserve. And Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. McDonald versus City Hospital, a $1.75 million verdict in a medical malpractice case. Bell versus Inova Health Systems, a $3 million verdict for paralysis due to failure to diagnose a medical condition. Clifton versus Georgetown University Hospital, a $50 million verdict for a young mother injured during childbirth. Again, if you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wrong but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace 
take care of your family. We get back now to talking Nats and Juan Soto with Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. You know, one of the topics that this Juan Soto situation inevitably raises is the wisdom of mega money contracts. And it's undeniable that most mega money contracts in baseball do not work out. Now, I am all for players getting whatever they can get, but I don't think that it's unreasonable for teams to be very leery of giving out, say, $200-plus million contracts to say nothing of $400-plus million contracts. From a team-building standpoint, from a roster construction standpoint, in your conversations with executives in Major League Baseball, where is the industry now when it comes to devoting a massive chunk of financial resources into one player? Are we still at a point at which, you know, this really is a team-by-team thing? Or is there a consensus building among MLB teams on the proper approach to mega-money contracts? I think that it's it's team-by-team. I also believe that in this case, you are... He is the player you give it to. And... That's age, that's style, but you know, it's his style is predicated on plate discipline, which is ageless. And I think that, like for me, like the trait, let's take Trey Turner, right? Did it make sense at 28 years old to sign Trey Turner for 10 years? You could argue that you get him for three years of his less of his prime, two, three years, maximum four. Years in which the Nationals may not even be, you know, ready to compete again based on the clock of their farm system, the guys they have coming through. And then by the time he hits that fifth year, he's declining while you're trying to go the other direction. Now, Soto, like, you're signing somebody before his prime, in theory, which is a crazy thing to even think about. <laughs> yeah. and, it's, and it's similar to Tatis, right? Like, those are the guys you do it for. So I think you're correct in that the, the conversation around long-term deals is changing. Uh, and the perception of them largely team by team is probably different than they might have been 10 years ago. But I don't actually tell what the logic applies to Juan because of all the boxes he checks. Yeah, that really is part of the brilliance of Juan Soto, that he is a player for whom you make the exception regarding giving out the mega money contract. Juan Soto is good enough, young enough, and charismatic enough to where you could argue that his value goes well beyond just what he does on the field. Do you know if the Nats have ever tried to quantify the economic value of having a superstar like Soto, i.e. what he means in terms of ticket sales, merchandise sales, etc.? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think I think you've you've seen quotes from his agent in the past trying to sort of quantify a player's value to an organization, um, arguing that you recoup the money and then some on a superstar, that's such a, <laughs> such, a, such a hard equation to wrap my head around. I'm not positive what the sort of where it comes out, but yeah. uh, I'm sure I'm sure there is. I, I think I think first and foremost, you, you quantify the baseball impact because I think how good your team is, I think maybe prevails over how how marketable an individual player is. But there definitely there certainly is added value for charisma, for age, for. The fact that, you know, he's a Latin American player who opens up, you know, to a new fan base and he's bilingual and all those things. I mean, I, I think that, uh, again, you could, the boxes he checks, uh, we, the more we talk, we probably, the list would probably get longer and longer. 
Do you know if the Nats years ago ever approached Juan Soto about doing one of these long-term contract extensions that buys out a player's arbitration years and a few of his free agency years? And it may well be that Soto and Scott Boris were never open to such an extension, but do you know if the Nats ever tried to do such an extension with Soto? I'm not I'm not sure. I, I never heard of it getting to the point of it even being discussed between the two sides, is what I can say. Um, whether it was considered internally, I'm not positive. I think um, the Nets haven't done a ton of those deals overall. Yeah. Let alone with you know Juan Soto. I mean, like you think about the way the Mariners do them really often, or um, we've seen the Braves do a few of them. Uh, I'm sure a lot of other teams come to mind, but like you know, I they didn't have like Victor Robles or Carter Keboom or um, players of, of that sort who are not of the 19 year old superstar variety, but at one point were very much sort of thought to be part of the at least six-year plan of their team control year. So um, it's not necessarily in their playbook overall. Uh, I'm sure you think about it with the superstar like Soto, but then the reason him being so good and maybe making you think about it is what disqualifies it from happening, if that makes sense. So the Nats ownership situation certainly seems to be a major impediment to the Nats signing Juan Soto to a contract extension, regardless of what the Nats are offering Soto. Like, why would a player sign a long-term contract extension with a team for which you have no idea who the owner is going to be moving forward? Your colleague at the Washington Post, Barry Verluga, he on Tuesday afternoon tweeted that the expectation is that the sale of the Nats will be completed by November. Uh, If the sale plays out that way, is that reason enough for the Nats not to trade Soto this season? and see if new ownership can make a long-term contract extension with Soto happen. I think it's fair to ask. I would say that largely, go back to it over and over, is like money will talk in this. Yeah. I think, you know, let's just throw around crazy numbers. If it was 15 for 600, <laughs> do you care? I mean, your worst enemy could probably run the team in two months. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's, so like, I think it's a factor. I think that one thing we have to remember in this is that we often parse out what executives say in public, thinking that teams are really calculated in this. I think that goes both ways. It doesn't necessarily behoove Juan Soto or Scott Boris from a pure marketing perspective, thinking about who you want to buy your jersey, the average American, right? To have people talking about him turning down $440 million, right? That's not like necessarily relatable. So I do think like, while there are other factors in why Juan turned that down, it's worth remembering that the framing from their side is just as important and worth parsing out as the framing on the national side. And so I guess what I mean is in more plain speak is that talking about ownership to me, I think is somewhat of a diversion from the fact that they just want more money. Mm -hmm. Uh, But would it help to have less uncertainty around that? Sure. I think so. But also, like, what, is it, what does it look like for the new owner to show Juan Soto in, you know, a month's time, two months' time, even a year's time, that they're serious about being competitive? I'm not sure that's something you can show in 12 months. So I think that's all, it's all hard to figure out what, how much of a, of a thing that is. I think, again, money's number one, then there's a massive gap, and then we can talk about city ownership, GM, manager, all those things. But it's money. <laughs> There's conversations about money. Yeah. Every agency, frankly. 
Yeah. When in doubt, assume that money uh, is the ultimate factor. So you referenced the state of the Nats, and the state uh, obviously is a woeful state. The Nats have been a terrible team so far this season, of having been a really bad team last season and a really bad team in the 2020 season. Um, You know, there, of course, is the thing of, well, when will the Nats be good again? But I also think that a very worthwhile conversation is, how did we get here? Why are the Nats in the state that the team currently is in? And to me, what has become impossible to ignore is the collapse of the Nats in terms of drafting and player development. The Nats, for nearly a decade now, have had way too little success in MLB drafts. What has happened to the Nats in terms of drafting and player development? Because the Nats, for years, were quite strong in those areas. And what really has been highlighted by the collapse of the team over the last three years is how poorly the Nats have done in MLB drafts and in player development. Yeah, I think it's a great question. How long do we have? <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think that, man, I mean, the figuring out the equation of, let's say, a standard player in the system, a fourth-round pick, a third-round pick, doesn't make it, right? Doesn't, doesn't produce for you, doesn't ever become a contributor. Trying to figure out where that falls on the draft, on player development, on whether the player just didn't take direction well, actually coaching, like that is a very confusing and in some ways very unanswerable question that what I can say is that there's a common thread among teams that are doing this better, that are developing players better, that are squeezing value out of lower round draft picks that are rehabbing and by rehabbing, I mean restoring pitchers, some veteran pitchers and their value. Um, I'm talking about the Yankees, the Rays, the Dodgers, um, you know, the Brewers, the the list goes on the Braves and player development. Um, The common thread is diversity of perspectives is embracing, you know, technology and analytics is finding a way to, not negate scouting from the equation, but make it a complement to the data. Um, those are all things that the Nationals are slow to, are trying to catch up in to some degree. But it's it's not necessarily a matter of, and I, and I go back to this point over and over, and I, I think I recently tweeted it when when Austin both made some comments about being you know you know not shocked, but being really taken back by the amount of technology the Orioles were using with him, I, I, I made a point that you can add, you can buy a hundred cameras and put them all over the stadium and download the software to your computers and your iPads to use the data. But unless the culture change happens from the top down, from the general manager, from the manager, from you know those running various departments, whether it's player development or drafting or scouting, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's just ornamental. It's it's a it's a bandaid fix, or it's a way to tell reporters, or um, maybe some people who feel marginalized within the organization that we're trying or we're changing. But until you actually make it a part of your process, until you really dig in, or you really say that we're going to use this this metric to evaluate the draft, or we're going to use you know this this sort of you know player 
evaluation system, or we're going to change the way we we deal with you know pitch selection or, or, or pitch development in the minor leagues. Until you really do that, take a hard look at your process, and take a hard look at what other teams are doing that are, are, are lapping you in areas like player retention, player development, draft, nothing's going to change. So I feel that there's been some movement on that front, but it's going to take a bigger shift within the front office and the coaching staff culture to actually make those changes uh, you know, worth it, frankly. And they had to start somewhere. You have to add the technology. You have to add the staff. But it won't, it won't mean anything unless there's actually a full top-down review, internal review of, of, how, of what's going on. Yeah, those Austin Voth comments really stood out. For those who may have missed these, so we on July 14th had the publication of a piece by ESPN MLB insider Jesse Rogers about the Orioles titled, How the Orioles, Yes, the Baltimore Orioles, Became the Hottest Team in MLB. And the piece included the following from former Nats pitcher Austin Voth, who now is with the O's. So the O's on June 7th claimed Voth off waivers from the Nats. Quote, I was kind of blown away by all the data that they have here, the video guys and how they can break down stats and pitches and individually things for each pitcher. That was big for me. End quote. And for those who have not been following uh, the career of Austin Voth since leaving the Nats, he so far, albeit in a small sample size, has been a lot better for the O's uh, than he was with the Nats. We know, Jesse, that the Nats are not, you know, a team that is like at the forefront of the analytics movement in Major League Baseball. That said, I mean, you do have to wonder, I know I wonder, hey, is there something systemically wrong here with the Nats that does help to explain their poor drafting and player development to where, you know, you have teams that are all in on analytics and then you have a team like the Nats, which seems to be far behind. Is the being far behind a function of the Nats having a president of baseball operations and general manager and Mike Rizzo, who has a scouting background, or has Rizzo wanted to do more with analytics and just has not been granted the budget with which to do more by the learners? I think it's, I think it's a mix of both. I think you know what your background is, and you, and also it's worth saying that for a very long time, like how the organization ran worked. You know, there was there was hits at the top of the draft board, and there were some really smart contracts. Um, on some big name players, and there was some really, really big hits in the international market. Juan Soto being the main one, and I think winning world, winning division titles and winning the World Series is, in some ways, you know, it's confirmation of some methods, but it also maybe does delay change that is necessary. And I'm not saying it doesn't mean it's the front office's fault for not adapting, but you can also see why maybe that change happens slower, right? Yeah. Where, as places where maybe they run division titles, or maybe you fall a few games short to the Braves or the Mets in those years, and you don't make the playoffs in 19, I think this sort of internal review and the sell-off and the reset and the restructuring of the, of the player development staff and, and a lot more resources there this offseason that I think was a request by the front office in past years that maybe ownership was more receptive to once the results on the field were not as good, right? Like Because to me, it's like, hey, we want you to spend a lot more money on your baseball team. Well, my, my baseball team wins 96 games and is, was one win away from going to the NLCS last year. Like, why, why do I need a, a nutritionist in in West Palm Beach? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I'm not. That's that's bad business, right? That's not that's not sound. 
but I also can, I can imagine the conversations, you know, that were happening when, when things were really good and when, and when the team was playing well, that, um, to, to, to look in the mirror and to make big changes and to throw resources at these new toys or these new tools or these new sort of staff positions that other teams are having, like the nationals could look at it and say, we're fine. We're winning baseball games. We're winning division titles. And then on the other side of that, when those long contracts run out and some of those good players get older and some of those homegrown guys get too expensive for you and for what you want to pay and they go elsewhere, then what's left? It's what we're seeing. This is the other side of that. So I think the, the best franchises adapt as they win, you know, and, and keep, you know, you know, sometimes like you'll see a trade by you know, the Yankees or the Rays or someone. It's like they just traded a contributing reliever for prospects and they're in first place, you know, and it's like that's staying one step ahead of a curve rather than reacting to when things don't go well. And that's what we're seeing now is nationals are in sort of defense reacting mode rather than getting ahead of this downturn. But uh, but again, I, I, I can not to excuse it, but I, I can see where that comes from. Yeah, yeah. There certainly seem to be a lot of lessons in what has happened here uh, with yeah. the Nats. Jesse Doherty, Nats insider for the Washington Post. Uh, Jesse, big fan of your work, man. Thank you so much for your time and all the best to you. Thanks, all. Appreciate it, man. All right, up next, a thought that I have had while on vacation. You know, the mind tends to wander while on vacation, and my mind has wandered to this place, the many parallels between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. What if this coming Washington season is like the team season of 10 years ago? I'll get to that after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, so if I asked you, what is the most memorable Redskins slash Washington football team season of the Dan Snyder era, uh, what would your answer be? 
Well, probably your answer would be, gee, there just are so many memorable seasons of the Dan Snyder era from which to choose. Uh, I gotcha. I hear you. But seriously, if I asked you, what's the most memorable Redskins slash Washington football team season of the Dan Snyder era, what's your answer? I'm guessing that your answer is the 2012 season. The 2012 season, of course, was a magical season. Uh, the Redskins in the 2012 regular season went from 3-6 and six to 10-6 and six and won the NFC East. The Redskins in the 2012 season were led by a rookie quarterback in Robert Griffin III and a rookie running back in Alfred Morris, and each guy was outstanding. Now, we all know how the Skins' 2012 season ended, the 24-14 loss to the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field in the wild card round of the playoffs, a game in which the Skins blew a 14-0 second quarter lead, a game that is forever known as the Seattle game because of what happened to RG3 in that game, torn right ACL, torn right LCL, and the repercussions of what happened to RG3's right knee in that game, and how what happened happened were felt for years to come. But still, there remains a fondness, a romanticism for many Commanders fans for that 2012 season. Well, could it be, might it be, that the Commanders' upcoming 2022 season will be like the Redskins' 2012 season? The ingredients, my friends, are there. But what also is there is an eerie, freaky, striking number of parallels between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. Now, I'll grant you that a lot of what I'm about to get into may well simply be circumstantial and coincidental and nothing more. You know, past performance isn't always an indicator of future return. And players and coaches for the 2022 Commanders have little, if anything, to do with players and coaches for the 2012 Redskins. But uh, that doesn't mean that we can't have some fun. And that doesn't mean that we can't ponder and wonder and marvel at the many, and I mean many, eerie, freaky, striking, and remarkable parallels between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. And so allow me to present to you these parallels between two teams exactly 10 years apart. Parallel number one between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. Veteran head coach in his third season as Washington head coach in a coach-centric approach of losing seasons in his first two seasons as Washington head coach. 2012 Redskins, Mike Shanahan. 2022 Commanders, Ron Rivera. It's crazy to me how many similarities there are between 2012 Mike Shanahan and 2022 Ron Rivera. Each guy had come to our team as an established NFL head coach, right? Mike with the Denver Broncos, Ron with the Carolina Panthers. Each guy was a Washington head coach in a coach-centric approach, with the idea being that the guy was going to change the culture. Uh, Mike officially was the Redskins executive vice president slash head coach, and had final say-so over player personnel, although at least according to Mike, uh, things didn't always work out that way. Uh, Ron, in title, is only the commander's head coach, but as we all know, he is the head coach in a coach-centric approach. He has final say-so 
on player personnel. He is the Don of the Commanders Mafia. He is Don Ron. And each guy had losing seasons over his first two seasons as Washington head coach. Uh, Mike Shanahan's first two seasons as Redskins head coach were 2010 and 2011. The Skins in the 2010 regular season went 6-10. and 10, And the Skins in the 2011 regular season went, wait for it, 5-11. and 11. Okay, we wound up 5-11. and 11. Not very good. Yes, as Steve Spurrier said in his final press conference as Redskins head coach, 5-11, and 11, uh, not very good. Uh, Rod Rivera's first two seasons as Washington head coach were 2020 and 2021. Washington in the 2020 regular season went 7-9 and nine, and, yes, did win the NFC East. Washington in the 2021 regular season went 7-10. and 10. It is spooky. How many similarities there are between 2012 Mike Shanahan and 2022 Ron Rivera? Parallel number two between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. A veteran defensive coordinator who, A, is in his third season as Washington defensive coordinator, B, had never before worked with the Washington head coach who hired him as defensive coordinator, C, is a former standout NFL linebacker, and D, and yes, there is a D, (laughs) has a first name that starts with the letter J. (laughs) 2012 Redskins, Jim Hazlitt, 2022 Commanders, Jack Del Rio. Think about all the similarities between Jim and Jack. Jim Hazlitt was the Redskins defensive coordinator from 2010 through 2014. Jack Del Rio has been Washington's defensive coordinator since 2020. Uh, Jim Hazlitt, prior to being Skins defensive coordinator, had never worked with Mike Shanahan. Jack Del Rio, prior to being Washington defensive coordinator, had never worked with Ron Rivera. Uh, Jim Hazlitt was a pretty good linebacker for the Buffalo Bills from 1979 through 1985. Also played for the New York Jets in the 1987 season. Hazlitt was the Associated Press Defensive Rookie of the Year, in fact, for the 1979 season. Uh, Jack Del Rio, he was a very good linebacker for a number of NFL teams from 1985 through 1995. Jack was a Pro Bowl linebacker for the Minnesota Vikings for the 1994 season. And yes, each guy's first name starts with the letter J. Jim and Jack. Again, eerie parallels. Uh, Parallel number three between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. A young offensive coordinator who A, is in his third season as Washington offensive coordinator, B, is the son of someone who was an NFL head coach for years, and C, is often criticized by Washington fans. 2012 Redskins, Kyle Shanahan, 2022 Commanders, Scott Turner. Kyle Shanahan was the Redskins offensive coordinator from 2010 through 2013. Scott Turner has been Washington's offensive coordinator since 2020. Uh, Kyle Shanahan, of course, is the son of Mike Shanahan. Scott Turner, of course, is the son of former Redskins, Oakland Raiders, and San Diego Chargers head coach Norv Turner. And just as Kyle Shanahan got skewered by Redskins fans during his time as Skins offensive coordinator, so too has Scott Turner gotten skewered by Washington fans during his time as Washington offensive coordinator. Now, there definitely are Commanders fans who like the work that Scott has done as Washington offensive coordinator, or at least see positives to what Scott has done as Washington offensive coordinator. I am one of those people, but there's no doubt that Scott has his detractors, just as Kyle Shanahan very much 
had his detractors. And I do think that a good bit of that has to do with this perception of the guy having his job because he's his daddy's son. And look, there's no question that each guy being his daddy's son has helped him. It also can be true, though, that each guy isn't so bad as an NFL offensive mind. You know, we'll see with Scott Turner uh, this coming season. Uh, this coming season, I think, is a really big season for Scott Turner. But Kyle Shanahan by now has been validated as a bright NFL offensive mind. And the people who said that Kyle was only the Redskins' offensive coordinator because of nepotism, you know, I think have been made to look pretty foolish. You don't have to love Kyle, but I think it's pretty clear Kyle has a pretty good idea of what he's doing as an NFL offensive mind. But yeah, Kyle Shanahan and Scott Turner. Another eerie parallel between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. Uh, Parallel number four between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. A starting quarterback who, A, is new to the team, B, was acquired by Washington in an offseason in which the team clearly was desperate for a franchise quarterback, C, is extremely gifted physically, and D, was taken with the number two pick in an NFL draft off a team making a major trade up in the draft to take him. 2012 Redskins, Robert Griffin III, a.k.a. RG3, 2022 Commanders, Carson Wentz, a.k.a. Commander Carson. (laughs) You know, not only do we have these parallels between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders, but we also have parallels between the 2011 Redskins and the 2021 Washington football team. And among those parallels is that each team went through a tough season at the quarterback position. The 2011 Redskins had Rex Grossman and John Beck as their starting quarterbacks. The 2021 Washington football team had Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, and Garrett Gilbert as the team's starting quarterbacks. And so the Redskins entered the 2012 offseason, just like Washington entered the 2022 offseason, desperate to find a franchise quarterback. And so we, in March 2012, got the Skins making the massive trade to go from having the number six pick in the 2012 NFL draft to having the number two pick in the 2012 draft, in which, of course, the Skins took RG3. And we, in March 2022, had the Commanders making the stunning, seemingly out-of-nowhere trade for Carson Wentz, who, remember, was taken by the Philadelphia Eagles with the number two pick in the 2016 draft off the Eagles trading up from the number eight pick in the 2016 draft. And while Carson Wentz is a different quarterback than RG3 was, I do believe uh, that Wentz is the most physically gifted quarterback who Washington has had since peak RG3. Now, RG3, of course, was a rookie for the 2012 Redskins. Wentz, of course, will be a veteran quarterback for the 2022 Commanders and will be a veteran quarterback, perhaps making his last stand as an NFL QB1. So there certainly are significant differences between 2012 RG3 and 2022 Carson Wentz in that regard. But there also are some notable similarities, as I just outlined. And bottom line, each guy was slash is being viewed as hopefully being a savior for Washington at the quarterback position. Uh, Parallel number five between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. A schedule that features a home game against the Dallas Cowboys in the final game of the regular season. Uh, The high point of the 2012 Redskins. Heck, arguably the high point of the Dan Snyder era was what happened in week 17 of the 2012 season. A 28-18 win 
over the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field on Sunday Night Football in a winner-take-all game for the NFC East. The winner of that game won the division. The loser of that game missed the playoffs, and the Skins won that game. Alfred Morris was sensational. 33 carries, 200 yards, three touchdowns. Linebacker Rob Jackson had a huge fourth quarter interception. What a night that was. I will never forget doing the official Redskins postgame show that night. Well, the final game for the Commanders in their 2022 regular season is a home game against the Cowboys. Week 18, Sunday, January 8th, 2023. Time, TBD. What if that game ends up being a winner-take-all game for the NFC East? It could happen, okay? That's not unfathomable. Uh, So there you go. Five major, eerie, freaky, striking, and remarkable parallels between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. Boy, Galdi, you're really stretching for some of these. I don't know about that. Am I? Am I? I mean, there are other parallels that I could mention. A non-first-round and non-second-round rookie running back who is a bruiser and who ends up slash could end up being far more impactful than anyone anticipated. 2012 Redskins Alfred Morris, 2022 Commanders Brian Robinson Jr. Now, we'll see what happens with Robinson, but I think that's something to be thinking about. Uh, A tight end named Logan, who ends up slash hopefully ends up being a significant contributor. 2012 Redskins Logan Paulson, 2022 Commanders Logan Thomas. Uh, Now, we'll see what happens with Logan Thomas, off him having suffered his torn ACL, MCL, and meniscus last December. I mean, I could really get ridiculous with the parallels, okay? There's the Joe Biden parallel. The 2012 Redskins had their season with Joe Biden as our vice president. The 2022 commanders will have their season with Joe Biden as our president. On and on I could go. I'll stop here, okay? That's probably a good place at which to stop. But if you have parallels between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 commanders that I have not mentioned, let me know. Uh, You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. This is sort of a combination analysis scheduled fun kind of a topic. The parallels between the 2012 Redskins and the 2022 Commanders. So yeah, do with all of this what you want. But as we approach the start of 2022 Commanders training camp, and we of course still are in the midst of all of the stuff involving our team and the workplace misconduct scandal in Congress, just keep in mind, that there could be some karmic forces at work for the Commanders in their 2022 season, making it like the Redskins' 2012 season. All right, a few things before we call it a show. We on Tuesday had a DeShazer Everett update. A former Washington safety and special teams ace DeShazer Everett on Tuesday pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of reckless driving in the death of Olivia Peters. Uh, DeShazer, this past December 23rd, was the driver in a fatal one-car crash in Loudoun County, Virginia, that killed the vehicle's passenger, who was 29-year-old Olivia Peters DeShazer, on February 8th, was charged with involuntary manslaughter. The Loudoun County Sheriff's Department's investigation determined that DeShazer was traveling, quote, over twice the posted 45-mile-per-hour speed limit just prior to the crash, end quote. Uh, So DeShazer now has pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of reckless driving. He'll be sentenced on September 8th. The statutory maximum in Virginia for what DeShazer has pled guilty to is 12 months in jail 
and a $2,500 fine. DeShazer is no longer on the team of the Commanders this past March 16th, hours before the start of the NFL's new league year at 4 p.m. Eastern, released DeShazer Everett. Uh, this coming season would have been his age 30 season. I would think that his NFL career is over, uh, but who knows? Um, just an awful situation. Uh, first and foremost, for Olivia Peters and her family. Uh, the Wizards, uh, they on Tuesday evening officially announced the signing of unrestricted free agent big man Taj Gibson. Uh, Taj Gibson has been around for a long time. Uh, this coming season will be his age 37 season. He was taken by the Chicago Bulls in the first round of the 2009 NBA draft at USC. You never know how an NBA team's rotation will play out over the course of a season, but the idea with Taj Gibson pretty clearly is for him to be a backup to the Wizards starting bigs, uh, Chris Stamps, Porzingis, and Daniel Gafford. Uh, also, over the last few days, Georgetown basketball news. Uh, Hoyas head coach Patrick Ewing on Monday afternoon announced the elevation of Kevin Nickelberry to associate head coach. Uh, this off Georgetown having just hired Nickelberry a few months ago. It was on March 24th that Ewing announced the addition of Kevin Nickelberry to the Hoyas coaching staff as an assistant coach and recruiting coordinator. Uh, Georgetown this offseason has undergone massive change. A bunch of players have left and a bunch of players have been brought in. Uh, all of this off the Hoyas this past season having been horrendous. The Hoyas last season, in case you forgot, went an inconceivable 0-20 in the Big East and lost their last 21 games. That Patrick Ewing remains Georgetown's head coach is a story in and of itself. But Georgetown brought in this guy, Kevin Nickelberry, and he has spearheaded the bringing in of a number of transfers. Uh, the Hoyas 2022 transfer class includes Brandon Murray from LSU, Primo Spears from Duquesne, Jay Heath from Arizona State, a cook, a cook from UConn, Bradley Isawero from LSU, Bryson Mazone from USC Upstate, and Kudis Wahab from Maryland. As Wahab is back at Georgetown off having transferred from Georgetown to Maryland the previous offseason. Uh, the Hoyas 2022 transfer class was ranked as high as number two on 247sports.com's transfer portal class rankings following the signing of Wahab, especially because of this kid, Brandon Murray from LSU. Brandon Murray was arguably the number one transfer in the transfer portal this offseason. He transferred from LSU. Kevin Nickelberry spent the previous three seasons at LSU, uh, for which he served as an assistant coach and director of recruiting. Nickelberry was LSU's interim head coach in 2022, and he, prior to his time at LSU, was the head coach at Howard, uh, 2010 to 2019. So a lot going on for Georgetown this offseason. Will the Hoyas be any better than they were last season? Well, it would be hard to be that bad, uh, to say nothing of being worse. Uh, but yeah, a lot has changed here for the Hoyas, and uh, we'll see if uh, the changes end up paying off dividends. If not, then I don't see how Patrick Ewing is back for the season beyond this coming season. And, you know, it may well be that Kevin Nickelberry is being positioned to be Patrick Ewing's replacement as Hoyas head coach. We'll see. That will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 360, will feature not one, but two special guests. I'll talk commanders with Ian Wharton of Pro Football Network. Uh, Ian is a really smart guy when it comes to writing and talking about football. We will talk about commanders quarterback Carson Wentz. We will talk about commanders running back Antonio Gibson, who Ian, by the way, thinks has been misevaluated by some people. And we'll talk about why Ian is bullish on the commander's 
for the 2022 season. And I, on Friday's show, have a special guest for you to talk Orioles. Eric Arditi of Barstool Sports, co-host of the Exit 52 podcast. Uh, Eric is a massive O's fan. He knows the O's very well, and he has a lot to say about what's going on with the O's this season. The team finally coming out of its rebuild, and right now very much being in wildcard contention. Have a great rest of your Thursday, and I'll talk to you on Friday. A couple of weeks ago, they were saying they will never train me, and now they, all these things that came out. Uh, it feels really uncomfortable. You don't know what to trust, but at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's out of my hands of what decision they made. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.